listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com. Amen. Please open with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew. First book in the New Testament, Gospel of Matthew, and we're going to be looking at the story of what happened in Bethlehem right after Jesus' birth. So let's go ahead and begin this morning by reading that text, Matthew chapter 2. Read the first 18 verses as we begin our study. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, Behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and we have come to worship him. Then Herod the king heard this, and he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. And they told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy, and going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh, and being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother, and flee to Egypt, and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child and destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, Out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region, who were two years and under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children, refusing to be comforted because they are no more. This is God's word. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word, and we pray this morning as we study it, Lord, illuminate our minds, illuminate our hearts, that we might understand these words, that we might apply them to our lives and our hearts, so that we might be challenged by them in the areas where we need to be challenged, comforted in areas where we need to be comforted, encouraged in areas where we need to be encouraged. Lord, we ask that you would do your work in our lives this morning as we study your word. Speak to us through it and give us ears to hear and hearts to receive. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're currently in the season of Advent, which is the four weeks leading up to Christmas. And the word Advent simply means arrival. We actually use the word Advent even in our modern vernacular. You know, we'll say things like, anytime we are describing the arrival of something that changed everything, we use the word Advent, don't we? So we talk about like the advent of the internet, you know, changed the way that the world functions. The advent of the smartphone changed the way that we communicate 
communicate. And that's the same idea here with the season of Advent is that we're focusing our hearts and our minds, our attention on the one thing that has changed everything more than anything. And that thing is the incarnation, the incarnation. And, and that's, that might sound like, a, what is that word, right? But just think about it this way. You know, in Spanish, right, the word for meat, right, comes from Latin carne, right? And what does that mean? Carne. So carne, meat. And what this means, incarnation, it means that God came to us in the flesh. He took on meat. He became flesh and blood. The incarnation is this event in history when God, who is invisible, took on human flesh. God, who is spirit, came to us in the flesh, in the person of Jesus Christ. And this is why, as Christians, we don't only follow Jesus, we worship Jesus. We don't just follow Jesus as a great teacher, but we worship him as deity, right? Because the Bible tells us that Jesus is, one of the titles he's given is Emmanuel, which simply means God with us. He is God with us. Come to us to teach us, to live as an example for us, but that's not all. He came in order to rescue us. He is God with us. And so for the season of Advent, we're looking at this incredible event of the incarnation. We're looking at Jesus as Emmanuel, God with us, and what that means for our lives today and every day from here on out. The title of today's message is The Hopes and Fears of all the years, the hopes and fears of all the years. And that line, you might recognize, it's a line from one of my favorite Christmas songs, O Little Town of Bethlehem. O Little Town of Bethlehem, it tells the story, right? This, this song tells a story about this town that was chosen for the Messiah to be born in. But in our text today, uh, we read about what happened in Bethlehem in the wake of Christmas, right? Right after Jesus was born. It's actually one of the most overlooked parts of the Christmas story. I don't know if you caught it as we were reading what this story tells, but it's not a very nice story. If you're reading the Christmas story to little children, you might skip over this part, and maybe rightly so. If you go to a, a Christmas pageant at your school, probably they're going to leave this part out of it. Because why? Because it's horrific. It's absolutely terrible. It's about a dictator killing infants and toddlers and mothers crying inconsolably. And this is the Christmas story. This is a part of the Christmas story. And let me ask you, what does this tragic, horrific story have to do with Christmas? Isn't this maybe an intrusion upon Christmas that maybe we should just skip over? Well, I would tell you this. What does this story have to do with Christmas? It has absolutely everything to do with Christmas. And I want to walk you through it. See, this story is what Christmas, at the end of the day, is all about. See, in our culture, we, we like to think about Christmas, right? We, we tend to have this kind of idyllic picture that we paint in our minds of this time of year, right? It's the happiest time of the year. It's, a, you know, the great day where we gather together with family and friends. You know, we have this picture in our mind of holiday parties at work and drinking eggnog, and it's a time of Christmas trees and presents and hot chocolate by the fire. And, and many times, I think we shoehorn Jesus and the Christmas story into that kind of idyllic picture and way of thinking about Christmas. Christmas, right? We create these manger scenes where it's like, you know, just a rustic family Christmas, right? Peaceful, idyllic. There's like a petting zoo and some neighbors who come over to bring presents, right? It's a very nice scene. It's very much what we want our Christmas to be like as well, right? Just nice, idyllic family. But then here comes this part of the story that doesn't seem to fit into that. 
Here we have children being murdered. We have blood flowing in the streets. We have children or mothers crying inconsolably because their children have been killed. And and it's as if God is trying to wake us up and get our attention and say, guys, this is what Christmas is about. This right here, this is what Christmas is about. What am I referring to? What is Christmas about? Here's what it's about. Evil. It's about death, sorrow, loss. You see these mothers crying inconsolably. I have a friend who a couple of years ago had a child pass away, untimely death. He died far too young. And uh, this friend told me recently, he said, you know, with every year that passes, you would think that it gets easier, but it doesn't get easier. It actually gets harder because with every year that passes, you think about all of the lost potential, all of what could have been and what is not. It's, it's that idea of disappointment, grief, regret, unfulfilled longing. If you don't understand these things, you cannot understand Christmas. You do not understand the point of Christmas until you understand these things. If you don't understand these things, you can't understand why the birth of Jesus, the advent of Jesus, is good news that brings great joy for all people. See, what this story reminds us is that this world we live in, though it is full of beautiful things and full of life, it's also tainted by evil and sin and death. We live our lives under this dark cloud that looms over us. This world in many ways is a battlefield. And the reason why Jesus came wasn't just to give us warm and fuzzy feelings at the holidays. It was to put an end to evil once and for all and to rescue us from its grip. That's what Christmas is about. The hopes and fears of all the years are met in him tonight. And I want to just walk you through that that line as we look through this text. That'll be kind of our outline, right? And we're going to talk about Herod's unique individual hopes and fears. We're going to talk about the hopes and fears of all the years, the big picture. And then we're going to bring it home and talk about our hopes and fears and how they're met in him today. So the hopes and fears. Again, under the setting of hopes and fears, I want to talk to you about Herod's plans and Herod's hopes and fears. Herod's plan was simply put to kill Jesus, to see Jesus dead, to put an end to Christmas. See, there tend to be two kinds of people in the world. You're either one of those people who, like in August, as soon as, or maybe even July, right? Like as soon as the 4th of July hits and it's over, you wrap up, go into the fireworks, now you're on to Christmas, right? You're breaking out your Christmas sweater, you're, you're listening to Christmas music on Spotify, and you're in the Christmas season. Let me tell you how uh, festive I am. I left my Christmas lights on my house all year long. And uh, in April, you know, your neighbors kind of judge you for being a lazy person who leaves your Christmas lights online. But then come October, who gets the last laugh, right? Because I'm the first guy in my neighborhood lighting up the Christmas lights. I don't have to get up there and risk my life when it's all icy. There you go. That's a life hack for all of you guys. Just leave the Christmas lights up all the time. Nobody will notice. For those of you who don't like Christmas, if you think you hate Christmas, you don't, your hatred for Christmas doesn't even hold a candle to Herod's hatred for Christmas. Herod hated Christmas so much that it sent him into a murderous rampage. Why? Because the wise men told Herod that this person who had been born, this child, was the king of the Jews. Now, Herod didn't like that at one bit. Why? Because he was the king 
of the Jews, right? Well, well, kind of. He was kind of the king of the Jews. That's important to understand. See, Herod was put in as king of Israel by the Romans. He was the king, but he was like a puppet king. He didn't really have true sovereign power. He was put in power by the Romans. The Romans came in, and what they did is they asked for like a diplomatic meeting with the leaders of Israel, who at the time were called the Hasmoneans. They met on top of this mountain called Mount Arbel, which is just this very beautiful place overlooking the Sea of Galilee. We got to go there earlier this year when we went to Israel. And what they did is they said, hey, you know, you know, just like heads of state always meet together and shake hands and talk about cooperation. They're in the neighborhood, you know, they're nearby. And so, hey, maybe they could get together and they could just meet each other and shake hands. Well, they shook hands and then the Romans threw the Hasmoneans off of a cliff and they killed them all. And what they did is they installed their own leader, which was Herod and his family. And so Herod comes to power. He, he not only, originally they only had power in the northern part of Israel, he kind of consolidated power throughout Israel, and Rome kind of didn't care what Herod did, because all they cared about was getting the taxes and keeping Israel under their sway. And so as long as Herod, you know, collected taxes and, and kept Israel under the Roman umbrella, then they were happy. And this is what Rome liked to do in lots of places. They would install puppet kings who could kind of run plays for them. You know, they would tell them what to do, and the, the local people would do it, kind of like managers, really. And they would run plays, they would enforce policies, and most of all, they would collect taxes. And see, the thing about Herod, they, they put him in power, but he wasn't even Jewish. And so this was a huge insult to the Jewish people. Not only was this guy calling himself the king of the Jews, but he wasn't even Jewish. He was an Idumean. Now, Idumeans, uh, you might know them in the Bible, they're also called the Edomites, right? They're the descendants of Esau. And um, they were kind of distant cousins of the Israelites. They lived in the land of Moab, which is current day Jordan. And Herod knew that the people of Israel, they didn't accept him. They didn't want him to be their king. But Herod had two great desires. On the one hand, he desperately wanted to stay in power, right? That was the one thing he wanted. The other thing he wanted was that he desperately wanted to be admired. He wanted to be in power and he wanted to be admired. So even though the people hated him ruling over them, he refused to ever step down or step aside because he loved being in power and he crushed every rebellion. He ruled with an iron fist. Um, but he was, at the same time, he wanted to be admired. And so he was constantly doing things to try to earn the admiration, the acceptance of the Jewish people, to kind of win them over. Uh, for example, he married a Jewish woman, and he actually converted to Judaism. And what he did is he poured a ton of money uh, into rebuilding and refurbishing and expanding the Jewish temple in Jerusalem. And this was done in the years leading up to Jesus. So when Jesus walked around the temple in Jerusalem, that was Herod's, you know, rebuilt, refurbished temple. And so when these wise men show up and they've got this news that this child has been born who is the long-awaited king of the Jews, the rightful heir to the throne of David, the promised king from all the prophecies, they expect Herod to be excited, but he's not excited at all because this child represents a threat to his power. And we see there in verse 4 that says that Herod gathered the scribes and the priests together and he asked them, where do the prophecies say that the child is going to be born, this newborn king that's promised? And they tell him Bethlehem in Judea. Well, Bethlehem's only like four or five miles away from Jerusalem. It's, it's like basically a suburb of Jerusalem. And so they go to Bethlehem. He sends them to go to Bethlehem and find where Jesus is. And he says, when you find where he is, come back and tell me because I want to murder, I mean, worship him, right? And so... Now let's just stop there for a second. 
just before we go on. The wise men say in verse 2 that the reason they have come is not just to visit Jesus, not just to meet him, not just to give him presents. They say specifically they have come to worship him. In fact, when they do meet him, they don't just give him presents, but they worship him. And then Herod says, yeah, me too. I want to go and meet this king, and I want to worship him. Now, that's really interesting because it tells us that everybody understood that this wasn't just any old king. This wasn't just another person. Jews especially would never, ever consider worshiping a human being, whether they were the king or not. And what this tells us, what we understand, is that they understood from the Old Testament that the promised king was not just another man, but he was in fact divine. So the wise men went to Bethlehem. They find Mary and Joseph. They present their gifts. But then, instead of returning to Jerusalem to tell Herod where he's at, they decide to leave a different route and go a different way because they're tipped off by God in a dream that Herod is a bad dude who wants to murder the baby king. So what does Herod do? Well, it says, well, he, he says that he's enraged. And he says, you know what? I'll take care of this on my own, no matter what I have to do. And so he orders that all of the babies in Bethlehem and in all of the district around Bethlehem, so all the other villages around there, everybody two years and under, just to be sure, will be killed. And that's what they do. Now, if you think that sounds too horrific to be true, you probably just don't know very much about ancient history, much less about Herod himself, because this wouldn't have even been a footnote in the diary. This wouldn't have even made the news in these days. See, if you think it's too crazy to be true, just consider who Herod was. He was so extremely paranoid. For example, historians, Josephus, the Roman historian, he tells us that Herod had two sons who he killed himself because he thought that they were in too much of a hurry to take his throne, right? They were kind of like, you know, hoping that dad would pass away because they wanted to inherit the throne. He also killed his wife, that Jewish wife he married to give him street cred in Israel. He killed her too. Then he killed his mother-in-law and then he killed his brother-in-law because he was paranoid that these people are trying to push him out or trying to take things that are his, right? Trying to take his power away. In fact, it was so extreme that Caesar Augustus said this about Herod. He said, it is safer to be Herod's pig than to be his son. So killing a couple dozen babies in a small town, that would have been completely within his character. Herod's life, though, think about this. Herod's life was defined by his hopes and his fears. Herod's life was defined by his hopes and his fears. And he was driven by the hope of being someone great, someone significant, making a name for himself so he would never be forgotten. Along with restoring the temple, he did a bunch of other massive and impressive things, really. He built a system of aqueducts, which you can still see in Israel. He built cities like Caesarea, which is this port on the Mediterranean. He built a fortress called Masada out in the middle of the desert that even had air conditioning 2,000 years ago. He insisted that people refer to him as Herod the Great right? Not just Herod, but Herod the Great. But see, here's the thing. When, whenever your greatest hope is in being someone great, inevitably your life will be characterized by fear. It will be. You know why? Because you will always be afraid of being insignificant. You will always be afraid of being forgotten. You will always be afraid of losing power and losing control. See, one thing you can be sure of is that Herod was not a happy person. He was not a content person. How do we know that? Well, because the historians tell us that Herod's cause of death was bloody ulcers in his stomach. You know how you get bloody ulcers? 
by being stressed out, by being anxious, by being worried. Anxiety literally ate him up from the inside out and killed him. For such a powerful person, he was incredibly insecure. It takes a special kind of insecurity to kill infants and toddlers in order to stay in power. Herod looked at Jesus, the rightful king, and Herod knew that he was the rightful king, and he said, I will not have this man rule over me. By the way, isn't that the same phrase? That's the exact same phrase that people shouted about Jesus when he was on trial right before he was crucified. Do you remember? They shouted, we will not have this man rule over us. And isn't that what people say today as well? So many people say, they look at Jesus, they may recognize that he is the rightful king, that he deserves to be sovereign and Lord over their lives, and yet they will say, I will not have this man rule over me. Now why? Why would you do that? Well, just like Herod. Why did Herod do it? Because of fear. It was fear. We fear giving up the throne of our lives. We fear losing control of our lives by surrendering to Jesus. We're afraid of what we might lose by letting him truly be Lord and King over our lives. We wonder, if I really give my life over to him, what will I have to give up? What will I lose? We don't want to give up control. We don't want to lose things. But let me, let me remind you of this. Herod didn't actually have real power, did he? He didn't have real power. He wasn't really in control. He just, he was a puppet. He just had a semblance of power, a semblance of control. The Romans were the ones who were really in charge. And in the same way, that's true of all of us. So many of us were so worried about control, being in control of our lives. We don't want to relinquish control over our lives over to God. And yet, like Herod, how much control do we really have? At the end of the day, if you want to know how much control you really have over your life, try this. Just try holding your breath for as long as you can. You'll find out very quickly how much you're not actually in control over your own life. You know, some of our most defining factors in our lives are defined by our hopes and our fears. What defines your life in large part are the things that you hope in and the things that you fear. And it's worth considering, it's worth asking yourself, what is it that you hope in? What is it that you hope for more than anything? And what is it that you fear the most? That will reveal a lot about you and, and your life. See, whatever those things are, they will absolutely shape and define your life. What do you fear and what do you hope in? They will determine what you do and what you don't do. They, they will determine the trajectory and the direction that you take with your life. They'll determine the decisions that you make, what you pursue and what you don't pursue. See, Herod's life was shaped by his hopes and his fears, and your life will be shaped by those things too. Depending on what those things are for your life, they will either enslave you or they can set you free, depending on what you hope in and what you fear. It can either enslave you or set you free. And we're going to talk about that more in a minute. But here's the thing. What's going on here is something that's really bigger than just Herod's individual hopes and fears. It's actually related to the hopes and fears of all the years. That's our second point. See, Herod wasn't the first person in history to try to stop Christmas by killing the Messiah. See, the roots of our deepest fears, our deepest hopes, our deepest longings, they all go back to the beginning of human history. See, the Christmas story, we read it here in Matthew, but you know that it didn't begin here in Matthew. No, it began in the very first book of the Bible. The whole book is about this. See, all the way back in the very first book of the Bible, the book of Genesis, we read that after God created the world, the people he created, they rebelled against him. We, we rebelled against him. He had shown us nothing but love and kindness, but we said what? We will not have 
him rule over us. And so they rebelled, they sinned, they thumbed their noses at God and they did whatever they wanted to do in opposition of what God had told them to do, which would be good for their lives. And as a result, sin and death entered the world and with it, disastrous effects, evil, sickness, death, separation from God. It's a mess. And you know it's a mess. You experience this every single day, don't you? You experience the brokenness of this world. You experience the brokenness, which isn't just out there, but it's also in you. And yet God looked at this mess and he said right there in Genesis chapter three, at the very beginning of the Bible, he said this, rather than just abandoning us to, you know, you made your bed, now lie in it type of thing, right? Like, and rather than abandoning us to the mess that we had made, he said, I'm gonna do something. I'm gonna save you from this. I'm gonna rescue you. I'm gonna make a way for you to be saved. He would intervene to make it right and he would do it, he said, by sending a person. And what he said in that very first prophecy about Jesus is this. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, he says there will be a child who will be born. And he says something unique. He says, as the seed of a woman. As the seed of a woman. See what that is? It's an allusion to the virgin birth. You know, we talk about the virgin Mary, the virgin birth, the virgin conception of Jesus. See, all throughout ancient literature, as well as in the Bible itself, the word seed is always used to speak of the man's contribution to the reproductive process, right? Bring you back to biology 101, right? But this is something different. Rather than speaking of the seed of a man like they do in the rest of ancient literature and even the Bible, this is something unique, something different. The seed of a woman. What he's describing is a child, a human, who will be born uniquely of a woman, and it's implied not of a man. Later on, the prophet Isaiah confirmed this, right? In Isaiah chapter 7, he said, Therefore the Lord will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall be with child and bear a son and call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. A human child who is God with us. And what will this child do? Well, it tells us there in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, as God's kind of, you know, telling people what the consequences of sin are. He turns to the serpent and he tells the serpent, you will strike his heel, but he will crush your head. You will strike his heel, but he will crush your head. This one will come, he'll be stricken, he'll be struck by evil, and yet he will crush the head of the serpent and destroy death and sin and evil forever. Again, Herod killing the babies. What does this have to do with Christmas? It has absolutely everything to do with Christmas. This is what Christmas is about. This is why Jesus had to come, because we live in a fallen world where there's evil and darkness and death and people who do horrible things. We live in a fallen world where that evil isn't just outside there in bad people. It's even gotten its claws into our own very hearts. We live in a fallen world where there's these things are a reality. But the good news is this. God has done something. He has acted in history. He has sent a savior who will put an end to evil and suffering and death forever. That is the good news of Christmas. See, ever since God announced this plan, Satan's been at work trying to do everything he can to do what? To prevent his head from getting crushed prevent his head from getting crushed. Think about it. If you were Satan and God tells you, hey, somebody's going to come one day. I'm going to send somebody to come and find you and crush your head. What are you going to do? Well, you're going to do everything you can to prevent that from happening and prevent Christmas from coming. And you see that throughout the Old Testament. Basically, that is the entire story of the Old Testament. As God reveals more and more about who this Savior will be and where he will come from and what he will do. 
By the way, you know that the Old Testament, right, the part of the Bible written before the birth of Jesus, it's full of prophecies about who the Savior, who the Messiah will be. And these prophecies are pretty much God. It's God, you know, calling his shot, right? Like eight ball corner pocket, right? He's, he, and he does it over and over again, right? He's telling you that when he does this, it's not just random chance. It wasn't just an accident. It was absolutely planned, and it was his exact plan coming to fruition. In fact, over the course of the 1,600 years over which the Old Testament was written, 1,600 years is the period of time over which the Old Testament was written. There were over 300 prophecies given about who the Messiah would be, what he would do in his life, where he would be born, you know, very specific stuff, what family he would be born in, how he would die, how he would resurrect from the dead. And some of these prophecies are so specific. You know, some mathematicians have at different times tried to calculate the mathematical probability of all of these prophecies being fulfilled by one singular person. And the probabilities that they've come up with are so astronomical that they're just ridiculous. Basically, it would take a miracle for one person to fulfill all of these prophecies. And the early Christians understood this. That's why throughout the, this chapter that we read, Matthew stops and, you know, every step of the way, he'll say, and this was done to fulfill the prophecy of Jeremiah. This was done to fulfill the prophecy of Hosea. This was done to fulfill the prophecy of Micah. Four times in this chapter, in verse 6, in verse 15, in verse 18, in verse 23, he says all of these things were done so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled. The hopes and fears of all the years, the hope of the world, to be liberated and set free from the tyranny of evil, the tyranny of death, the fear of Satan, that God is going to one day come and crush the head of the serpent. That's what Christmas is about. And so we see throughout the Old Testament as God revealed more and more about how this was going to happen, how he was going to do it, you know, eight ball corner pocket, who the Savior is going to be. Satan, he's paying attention too, right? And he's like, well, if that's what it's going to be, then I'm going to go and try and inspire some people to do some things to prevent me from from getting my head crushed. So for example, it says that the, the Savior is going to come through the family of Abraham, through the line of Judah. And so what does Satan do? He tries to defile Judah and mess up his family line. We see that he says he's going to come through the nation of Israel. And so one day Pharaoh wakes up in Egypt and just decides, you know, all these uh, Jewish people I've got working for me, you know what I should do? I should murder all their children and then kill them too. Who inspires an idea like that? Satan trying to avoid getting his head crushed by preventing Christmas from happening. Later on, it's revealed the Savior is going to come through the lineage and the family line of David. So one day, King Saul wakes up and he says, David, you killed Goliath and you fight all my battles and you married my daughter. I think today is a good day to kill you. And he starts throwing spears at him and chasing him around the wilderness. Where does he get that kind of idea? Who inspires that? It comes from Satan trying not to get his head crushed. Years later, there's a guy, in, when they get taken into captivity, there's a guy named Haman who comes up with a plan. Hey, you know what would be a lot of fun? We could kill all the Jews. And it would have worked. He would have succeeded if it hadn't been for the decisive and heroic action of a brave woman named Esther. Who's behind Haman's plot to kill the Jews? Guess who? Once again, Satan trying to prevent Christmas from happening, trying to not get his head crushed. If you think I'm making this up, I'm not. Let me show you. In Revelation chapter 12, we're looking back on all of the Old Testament. It summarizes it. And it says this. You know what human history is like? It's like this. It's like a woman 
pregnant with a child, ready to give birth. Who's that woman? The nation of Israel, pregnant with a child, the Messiah. And he says that along with this woman, he says, I saw a red dragon. I saw a red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, poised to devour the child the moment it was born. That's what that's saying. This is human history summed up. God's plan to bring redemption and salvation to the world, pregnant with salvation, and Satan doing everything he could to prevent Christmas from happening so he doesn't get his head crushed. That's what's happening here in Matthew chapter 2. This is a last-ditch effort to get Herod to kill some babies so maybe he can kill Jesus and prevent Christmas. It's just one of many attempts by Satan throughout history to prevent the promised Savior from coming into the world because this is what Christmas is is about at the end of the day. Not just sleigh bells and and hot chocolate by the fire. It's the culmination of God's plan to bring salvation to the world, to crush the head of the serpent, put an end to evil so that one day soon he will bring about a new world of peace and justice forever. See, Christmas, the incarnation, it's the most incredible, hopeful, significant thing that has ever happened in human history because, understand this, Christmas is not a compliment Christmas is a rescue mission. Christmas isn't a compliment, it's a rescue mission. The message that Christmas had to happen is the message that you can't save yourself, that you need literally God himself to come here and rescue you. That's how lost and desperate our situation is. But you know what else Christmas means? It is unequivocally the message that God loves you. He loves you so much beyond any shadow of a doubt. He loves you because he left heaven and came to earth in order to save you. So let's finish up by looking at this. The hopes and fears of all the years are met in him tonight. You know, the last words that are ever written about Herod the Great, the so-called, you know, the would-be king of the Jews, are found in verse 19 of Matthew chapter 2. And here's what they say. But when Herod died... But when Herod died, Herod, this man who was willing to do anything and everything to stay in power, even kill babies, at the end of the day, he dies. Jesus comes back from Egypt and fulfills even more prophecies by being raised in Nazareth. Herod's so focused on keeping his throne, but ultimately, he can't. He can't hold on to it. Ultimately, it, death separates him from it. It's in a, in a, unavoidable. And here's so, what's so ironic and what's so tragic about Herod. What was his greatest hope? The things that he lived for, the things that he treasured, the things that he valued the most were all things that he could not keep. They were all things which inevitably he was going to lose. Either somebody would take them from him or he would lose them to death, but he could never hold on to those things. And that's what's so sad, what's so tragic about it. Herod loves power. His hope, his great hope is to have a reputation as someone who is great. And in the end, he becomes a slave to that desire, doesn't he? He becomes a slave. He's a slave to trying to prove himself, to impress people, to prove that he really is great. He's a slave to his position. He's got to do everything, even killing his own children in order to hold on to his position. He's a slave to it. He's not free. See, because of what Herod hoped in, he became a slave to his hopes. He became a slave to his desires. And his life was dominated by fear. See, for all of us, what you hope in and what you fear define your life. What you hope in and what you fear define your life. And depending on what you hope in and what you fear, that will either enslave you or it will set you free. See, for all of us, our hopes and our fears are tied to what we treasure. 
They're tied to what we treasure, what we value the most. If you have children, you treasure those children. And guess what? That means that you have hopes for those children and you have fears about those children. Why? Because you care about them, because you treasure them. And the same is true in other areas of our lives. But Jesus told us something. He said this, rather than storing up treasure here on earth where moth and rust destroy and thieves break in and steal, instead, store up treasure in heaven where moth and rust don't destroy and thieves cannot break in and steal. You know he's not just talking about money, right? He's talking about all of the things that you treasure, your greatest value, the thing that you hope in the most. Because your deepest hopes and your deepest fears will always be associated with the things that you treasure the most or hope in the most. And what you treasure, what you live for, what you value the most, if it's something that's attached to this world, your life will always be characterized by fear of losing that thing. Herod sat on a throne, but his life was characterized by fear. He died of ulcers. He killed his own children. He was a slave to fear because, why? His hope, his treasure, the thing he valued the most, was something that he stood to lose at any moment. And so he lived in fear. Many of us, we live our lives under a cloud of fear. Fear of failure, fear of loss, fear of insignificance. You know, C.S. Lewis famously said this. He said, don't let your happiness depend on something that you can lose. See, if your treasure, if your greatest hope, your ultimate source of joy is something you can lose, your life will inevitably be characterized by fear. You will fear death itself. Why? Because death separates you from those things that you want the most, that you treasure the most. But here's the deal. If your treasure is in heaven, then guess what? If that's where your hope is, then death will only bring you to those things. It will only unite you with those things that you treasure. And therefore, you're free from that fear. In Philippians chapter 3, there's this incredible passage where Paul the Apostle talks about the things that he used to value, the things that he used to treasure the most in the past. He said, you know what I used to value? It used to be my treasure. I treasured my nationality, that I was an Israelite. I treasured my education, that I was trained under the greatest rabbi of the day. I, he treasured his zeal, that he was a hard worker, that he was passionate. But then he comes to this point where he says, but you know what I've come to realize? I now consider all of those things I used to treasure, all the things which I used to believe gave me value, the things that I used to hope in and live for. He said, all those things, you know what I do with them now? I consider them rubbish. They are trash to me. You know why? Because of the surpassing greatness, the surpassing value of knowing Jesus. And he says, for his sake, for Jesus' sake, for the sake of the gospel, I have suffered the loss of all things and I would give up even more because now I only have one singular goal in my life, one hope, one treasure, which is to be found in him with a righteousness that's not my own, knowing that one day I will partake in the resurrection. You see, there are some hopes and fears which will make you a slave. We see that with Herod. There are other hopes and fears which will make you free. If you fear God above all else, if he is your greatest treasure, that's when you experience true freedom. That's when you can live a fearless life and be confident in the face of any and all circumstances because all of the hopes and fears are met in him tonight. See, when that's the case, you will be free to love and to serve and to give generously 
when he's your greatest treasure, when he's your greatest hope. Here's why. Because you'll understand that all of your deepest longings, your greatest desires, they will be fulfilled ultimately and fully in him on that day when your redemption is complete. And so you and I, we don't need to be obsessed with trying to live our best life now like Herod was. That was, that was how he lived his life. Why? Because you know that your best life is yet to come. And that makes you free to take your focus off of yourself. It makes you free to love generously and serve generously and to give generously. See, your greatest hopes and your greatest fears, if you can be honest about what they are, honest with yourself, you'll notice this. They are oftentimes signposts pointing you to Jesus. If you can be honest about what you fear the most, what you hope in the most, you'll find that those things are signposts pointing you to Jesus. All of our deepest desires are ultimately desires for something deeper than what we initially tend to think. Anytime you catch yourself saying to yourself, if I only had that, then I would be okay. If I only had that, then I would be fulfilled. Then I would be satisfied. Then I would be happy. In almost every case, you're just not going deep enough. You're stopping short. One author I, I read, he described it this way. He said, every desire you have is like a ladder. And if you keep going up that ladder, what you'll find is that that ladder eventually leads you to Jesus. See, whether it's a desire for intimacy, whether it's a desire for security, for acceptance, for stability, for love, for beauty, for transcendence, Herod's desire was for power. He wanted to have a name. He wanted to be great. He wanted importance and identity and significance. And what's that about at the end of the day anyway? It's about security, isn't it? That ultimately, he's in control. He's secure. That's why we love control, because it gives us a sense of security. But in all those things, what? We find that in Jesus, a true sense of security, of perfect peace. It's found in and through Jesus. St. Augustine explained, he said, sin is when you get your desires out of order. Sin is when you get your desires out of order, right? Desires themselves are usually desires for something that's ultimately good, but you're seeking it in a cheap, rip-off kind of way that not only won't fulfill, but it will destroy you and potentially hurt others. It's a cheap substitute. That's what sin is. See, the truth is that all of our desires, they find their truest, greatest, ultimate fulfillment in Jesus. In him, you can have perfect peace, true security, full acceptance by the one who knows you fully and yet he loves you completely. In him you can know real intimacy. The intimacy you long for is just a shadow of what you truly long for, which is found in him. Identity when he pronounces who you are. Significance. If you want to know how significant you are, look at Christmas. Look at this, the God of all the universe, the God of this earth, he took on human flesh. He left his throne to come to you. And I love this passage in the Bible. It says that God has, he has engraved your name on the palm of his hands. That's more than like a tattoo on his arm. That's taking a knife, the picture is drawing, taking a knife, it's a metaphor, but this is the metaphor. And he's carving your name into his own hands so that it'll be there for him to look at whenever he wants. You didn't have to fight to earn that significance. You don't have to work to hold on to it. It's yours and it is secure in him. Think about it. What are the things that you hope in the most, that you fear most deeply? And understand this, those things are signposts pointing you to Jesus in whom all of those things will ultimately be fulfilled. Your deepest fears will be quelled. And if your hope is in him, then you can live this life with the joy that comes from being truly free. Herod's plan was for Jesus to die. 
But do you know what God's plan was? It was also for Jesus to die, wasn't it? Herod's plan was for Jesus to die, but God's plan was also for Jesus to die. That's why he was born. Herod thought that by killing Jesus, he could stop Christmas. He could preserve that which he treasured, which was his throne. But in the end, he lost his throne. It was taken from him by death. Jesus, on the other hand, he willingly gave up his throne in heaven to come to earth in order to give us a kingdom which lasts forever in order to defeat death and evil. And the question for us today is this. How will you respond to this newborn king? Will you respond as Herod did and say, I will not have this man rule over me because you're afraid of what you might lose? Or will you say, all of my hopes and all of my fears ultimately find their fulfillment in you. So come and take the rightful place as Lord and King over my life. I guarantee you, if you do that, you will experience the freedom and the joy that comes from hoping in him, the God who has come to end evil and defeat death so you can have eternal life and abundant life here and now in him. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the life that you offer us through Jesus. We thank you, Lord, that you are the king who gave up your throne for us in order to give us a kingdom that lasts forever. Thank you, Lord, for this promise that death and evil and suffering will not have the last word. Lord, I thank you for this promise. Help us to live in this as we go about our day. As we deal with the, the pains of this life, Lord, help us to walk in this hope. Lord, help us to fear you and to hope in the gospel. And Lord, may that set us free to love generously and to give and to serve generously just as you served us. Thank you, Lord, that our best life is yet to come and we look forward to that. And Lord, I pray for anybody here today who hasn't yet embraced the gospel. May this be the moment when they say, yes. And they put their yes down. Lord, I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com.